This is episode number 38 of the Individual One podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the bi-weekly program which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective, because unfortunately no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. Unlike the corporate media, we at the Individual One podcast have most definitely not been compromised. Welcome to the program. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. Follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at individual one pod. That's individual, the number one pod. Thanks for bearing with us through some scheduling issues. We were not with you last weekend because it was Father's Day. And then uh, I was on a family vacation this past week. I did not anticipate that we would have another scheduling issue this coming week. So we're not going to be doing another uh, podcast for Individual One on Wednesday as we normally do. So we're going to try to pack as much in to this special edition on a Saturday. So we're all we're all screwed up. We'll get back on schedule sometime soon. But this is the kind of thing that happens in the summertime. And when you're covering Donald Trump, there's just always so much to talk about. You need at least two shows a week. So hopefully we'll be back on that schedule soon. But not uh, yet uh, for this particular week. Now, the big story of the last several days is something that did not happen. Uh, The uh, apparently planned and then at the last moment scrapped strike against Iran that had been approved by President Trump. And then at the very last minute, although it's still open for debate, how last minute, the president changed his mind and pulled the plug on the whole thing. This occurred because uh, Iran apparently shot down uh, one of our drones over international waters. Now, it's important to point out, because context is everything in life, that, uh, yes, this was an unmanned drone, but this wasn't like a drone that uh, your teenage son is flying uh, outside, uh, you know, in the park uh, for some for some giggles. This thing was uh, over $100 million dollars. And there's no evidence at all that uh, it was doing anything wrong or it was inappropriately placed. And then Iran just shot it down. Now, in retaliation, there were those very close to the president that were saying that this warranted a military strike. That part appears to be clear. And it appears to be very obvious that at one point, those in favor of the strike had won over Trump's feelings or his position on this. Of course, his position can change with the wind because he's a child. And that's apparently what happened with the strike being called off, as I said, the very last moment, although we don't know what that really means. So much of what we think we know comes from Donald Trump himself, which is inherently problematic. Correct. Because he is a pathological liar and he is an expert at covering up things that he thinks might be mistakes by creating false narratives, which is ironic since one of his mantras is fake news. He's a master of creating fake news. And it appears as if we've seen some of that in reaction to his decision on Iran. The first major quote-unquote news bulletin we had about what really did or did not happen occurred when Donald Trump decided to tweet uh, in the morning 
after this uh, did not occur, Donald Trump tweeted on Monday, they, meaning Iran, shot down an unmanned drone flying in international waters. We were cocked and loaded to retaliate. <laughs> we, were, we were cocked and loaded? It's just flat out ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, come on. Cocked and loaded? What the hell does that mean? You cannot be serious. Cocked and loaded. I... Did he did he mean locked and loaded? I, and then he I, I don't know. Who knows? With with Trump, anything is possible. But I do know this: if Barack Obama ever claimed he was cocked and loaded to retaliate against Iran for having shot down a U.S. military drone, uh, Fox News Channel would be on 24-7 alert until the end of time. Uh, but I digress. So we go back to Trump's tweet. We were cocked and loaded to retaliate last night on three different... Now, by the way, I, I don't know. I'm not an expert on this, but that sounds like information that probably should not be divulged publicly, that we, we were ready to retaliate at three different sites. But then if you're going to provide, you know, whether it was secret, confidential, classified information, whatever, maybe you spell the word correctly... <laughs> Which he did not do. Three different sites. S-I-G-H-T-S. That's the President of the United States. Three different sites. When I asked how many will die. Now, right there. Wait a minute. You were already cocked and loaded. <laughs> then you ask how many will die? 150 people, sir. He really liked the fact that the generals called him sir. He really, he he got off. He, I mean, th that might have been the only missile that actually was fired, was Trump's missile when he got called sir all night long by generals in discussing this uh, potential missile launch. Uh, but he, he writes, 150 people, sir, was the answer from a general. Ten minutes before the strike, I stopped it. All right. I got questions. <laughs> I, got, I got a lot of questions here. All right, first of all, there is no chance in hell. There's no chance in hell that Donald Trump was not told what the potential casualties of this strike would be until he asked 10 minutes before the strike was scheduled to occur. All right. <laughs> I mean, that is just not possible. Correct. And there have been sources within the administration who have fought back against this narrative already. In fact, actually, they basically did this immediately, saying, wait a minute. No, 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 no. Uh, this is not the way it happened. It's possible. I mean, I love, I love that they have to treat the president like he's a child. It's possible that because he missed his nap that day, he forgot. Or maybe he wasn't paying attention or maybe he wasn't distracted. Like, you know, when I tell my daughter <laughs> that she has to brush her teeth before she goes to bed and she doesn't do it. And she says, I, I didn't hear you. I forgot. That's basically what we're dealing with here, that that we have to assume that it's possible that the president of the United States just simply wasn't paying attention, didn't really concentrate on it. And that he only then, and this is giving him every possible benefit of the doubt, he only then at the last minute says, hey, wait a minute, how many people are going to die here?
And he then gets an answer of 150 people, sir. Now, there is a report, and you never know, again, because you don't can't trust anything out of this administration, what's accurate and what's not. But it, it, it does seem plausible, this report to me, that the 150 number came at the last minute from someone who was trying to convince Trump not to strike, that the original assessment was not 150 people, but that there was a counter assessment that was done for political reasons. And everyone knows the last person to speak to Trump uh, with the shiniest object usually ends up winning the argument. And it is possible that Trump was looking for a way out and decided, hey, uh, all right, I can't do this. This isn't proportional. This was an unmanned drum. By the way, I want to make it very clear. I don't know whether or not the strike was warranted. I don't know if it was the right idea. I don't know what uh, dominoes would have fallen had it occurred. I don't know. And I am one of these rare commentators that really only speaks about things I feel like I have a clue about. I don't know what the right answer here was. I'm talking about the process. I'm talking about how... Donald Trump's decision-making process works and how incredibly dangerous it is and how if anybody else, say a Democrat, say Barack Obama, had done the same thing, even close to the same thing, then so-called conservatives, Republicans, and the state-run conservative media would go absolutely freaking bananas. Correct. And for good reason. Now, is Trump's tweet even remotely true. Even Trump himself appears to contradict that in statements after the tweet. Now, so it's always very difficult to piece all this together. There's a couple different theories here. One is that this is Trump the genius. Trump puts one thing out on Twitter that seems, you know, like he's he's trying to play the tough guy and that he actually uh, made this incredibly uh, reserved and disciplined decision and he was cocked and loaded and ready to obliterate and then he decides uh, to pull back on it. And then once he goes on television and he's not really appealing to the cult because this is, uh, you know, NBC mainstream television, an interview for Meet, for Meet the Press tomorrow uh, with Chuck Todd, he's, you know, trying to appeal to a different group of people. It's not for his cult. And he told a, a, a very different story to Chuck Todd. Here is a segment of that interview that NBC released yesterday previewing the president's interview with Chuck Todd and Meet the Press on Sunday. So did you green light something or had you said, uh, if we do it, I'll do this? What was yeah. it, what was the order you gave? Nothing is green lighted until the very end because things okay. change, right? So and you never gave a final no, order? No, 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 no. But we had something ready to go subject to my approval. And they came in and they uh, came in about a half an hour before. They said, sir, we're about ready to go. I said, uh, I want a better planes definition. Planes in the air? Were planes no, no, in we're the air? about ready to go. Yeah. Uh, no, but they would have been pretty soon. Uh, and things would have happened to a point where you wouldn't turn back or couldn't turn back. So uh, they came and they said, sir, we're ready to go. We'd like a decision. I said, I want to know something before you go. How many people will be killed? In this case, Iranians. Mm -hmm. I said, how many people are going to be killed? Uh, Sir, I'd like to get back to you on that. Great people, these generals. They said, uh, came back, said, sir, approximately 150. And I thought about it for a second, and I said, you know what? They shot down an unmanned 
uh, drone, mm -hmm. plane, whatever you want to call it. And here we are sitting with 150 dead people that would have taken place probably within a half an hour after I said go ahead. Yeah. And I didn't like it. I didn't think it was I didn't think it was proportionate. Well, it's good to know that he thought about it for a second, which is what he said. It's nice. It's nice that the president of the United States thought about it. Oh, on second thought for a second, maybe 150 people isn't proportionate to an unmanned drone. That story he told to Chuck Todd is completely inconsistent with the tweet in a lot of ways. That story, again, we don't know what's true because it's Trump and he's a pathological liar. Correct. But here's the story he tells to Chuck Todd. It doesn't sound, he says, planes weren't even in the air. He uses the phrase 30 minutes, not 10 minutes. It sounds like there we were 30 minutes from the operation starting. All right. That's very different from the tweet, which says 10 minutes before the strike, I stopped it. Right. <laughs> Those are two totally different things. 30 minutes before the planes take off and 10 minutes before the strike. Very, very different stories. Now, as far as what his real motivation was, again, it's very difficult to know for sure. But there's nothing inconsistent with two theories which might be related to one another that, frankly, I think the media is being rather soft on Trump about because they're so potentially devastating. Number one is that here's what really happened. The president of the United States wimped out. He thought he was going to be the big tough guy. And then at the very last minute, when push came to shove and he, there was no going back and it was the final decision, do we go or no go, he wussed out. And that that's really who he is. That, like most bullies, when it comes down to it, he's just a big wuss. Correct. That is, I don't know that that's what happened, but there's nothing in the factual record that would contradict that. And if that happened, it's very uh, consistent with Trump's M.O. that he would go out there and immediately put out a bogus cover story trying to make it look like, that's not what happened and that he's actually going to turn into the curve and celebrate because that's the most maybe the most bizarre part of this whole episode is that he goes out on Twitter and he's bragging about how this happened. Now, under the best scenario, under the you give him every benefit of the doubt, OK, that he's telling the truth, that he made the right decision, that discipline won in the end and the right call was made if you give him every possible benefit of the doubt he's still acknowledging publicly he made a decision to go forward with this without a critical piece of evidence which is how many people are going to die correct <laughs> so that's a problem but that one he doesn't even seem to understand he doesn't even seem to care about it and so, and he's basically just saying, believe me. I mean, that's, that's what we have to rely on. And, and that's always a problem when you're dealing with a pathological liar. So that, so that's one possibility. And there's another possibility that's not inconsistent with the first one. And I'm amazed. I'm amazed that the media 
has not really raised this in a substantive fashion. But in the morning of the day the strike was planned, Trump basically essentially said, we're going to do this. You know, stay tuned. You know, that's in a classic Trump fashion, right? The the reality TV show uh, producer wants everyone anticipating this, but he doesn't deny it's going to happen. And he makes it clear that that he wants to, to retaliate in some way. In between that moment, and the moment when the, the strike is officially called off, whether that was 30 minutes before the planes took off or 10 minutes before the strike, someone makes a public statement saying that this is a bad idea. You know who that person making a statement saying this was a bad idea is? Vladimir Putin. Correct. So Vladimir Putin comes out publicly. It's reported widely that the Russian president is warning the United States not to retaliate for the drone strike. Within a couple of hours after that, Trump pulls the plug. I don't know for sure that there's a direct connection, (laughs) but how is it that given what we've just been through with Russians helping Trump in the election and the entire Russian investigation and, and everything we've seen in the relationship between Trump and Putin, how is that not worthy of some serious speculation. Again, using the the hypocrisy issue and and using some sense of consistency, which of course has now been blown to smithereens in the Trump uh, era. If Hillary Clinton had the history she uh, that uh, Trump has with Vladimir Putin, and Putin came out and said, "Don't do this," and then Hillary Clinton decided at the last minute not to do this, that's all we would hear about in the conservative media. It's, oh, my God, she's she's Putin's pet. That Putin's calling the shots here. Again, I don't know if that's just an interesting coincidence. I don't know if it's directly connected. But there's certainly nothing inconsistent with the way this went down. And if if that is the way that it went down and the factual record, Trump would need an excuse And the best excuse you could come up with was the number of casualties, right? That would be the way to make yourself look the best you could if it was a wimp out or you were doing Putin's bidding or if it was some combination thereof. That's exactly what you would do. And you would find a lot of factual inconsistencies in the story because after all, he's making it up as he goes or not. That's how you know it's a lie. Because the story changes and there's elements of it that don't make any damn sense. (laughs) Like, for instance, 10 minutes before we're about to strike, you you suddenly ask the question, by the way, how many people are going to die here? Now, again, as far as what the right decision here was, I don't know. But I'll tell you what the wrong decision was. To make it as clear as day to the whole world that you were about to pull the trigger and then you wimped out and then you're not going to do anything. And oh, by the way, he's lying apparently about having put sanctions on Iran because it's not in his DNA to be able to be perceived as having wimped out because he's a phony bully. So he made up this story about, well, we're putting new sanctions on Iran. There's no evidence of that. The Treasury Department has made no statement that is consistent with that actually happening. There's no evidence of it. So what's the bottom line here? Again, I don't know what the right response would have been, but the bottom line here is 
that Iran shot down a over hundred million dollar piece of our military equipment for no reason, and they have gotten zero to this day, zero retaliation from the United States, and even worse than that, they have been they have sh- Trump has shown Iran and the world that exactly how to get him to wimp out. He's telegraphed to the world. Not only does he does he have fear of pulling the trigger, but 150 casualties will do it, depending on what the offense is. That that will make him get queasy, weak-kneed, and wimped out. That's incredibly dangerous. And it's way worse than if we had done nothing. If we had done nothing, it's a non-story. It's over. We, you can pretend that in the back channels we're doing something. And at least you don't lose face. But in order to try to save face with his cult, Trump has actually lost enormous face to the international community and to Ron in particular. And, you know, um, I saw somebody make a really good point on Twitter who's a Trump critic, but, you know, not as much as I am, who, because they have to write for a conservative uh, media outlet, so therefore they're not allowed to be as much of a Trump critic as I am, but I digress. They made a really good point that part of Trump's persona of being insane that actually works is that rogue regimes and even sometimes not rogue regimes around the world, fear him a bit. And they don't know exactly what he's going to do, right? I, I, which I agree with. I mean, there are some positives to Trump being nuts. And one of the positives to Trump being nuts is that these regimes, like in Iran, aren't quite sure what to make of Trump. They don't know exactly how he's going to respond. Therefore, there's at least a little bit of fear there. Well, Trump has eliminated that. Trump has done exactly the opposite by showing the world that he's actually incredibly sensible, or maybe even too sensible, and very easily manipulated, all based upon a few casualties from the enemy. Not, by the way, these weren't, um, it's important to point out, <laughs> this wasn't a question of we might have American casualties. No, 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 no. These were Iranian casualties he was concerned about. And I'm not saying it's irrelevant, but in the scheme of things, 150 Iranian casualties, again, that's probably the very high end of the estimates and may have been an attempt to manipulate him into bailing on this for political reasons. That's not that many people. If that's the threshold, then boy, uh, Trump has just basically dictated that there's going to be very few situations that require a military response from the United States under him. So in in my view, this has been a disaster, even if it was the right answer. See, you can get the right answer. Again, I don't know if it was or not. You can get the right answer in a way that's so disastrous and so problematic and causes so many negative things to occur that it's actually as bad or worse than if you would gotten the wrong answer. And... I think this illustrates the bigger picture of one of my larger Trump concerns. And that is Trump does not have the credibility. He does not have the moral high ground. He does not have the moral authority 
to be getting us into any sort of military conflict that is remotely controversial or not clear cut. He just does not possess that. Correct. And that is one of the most important things that a president can possess and must possess. You must have the trust of at least the majority of the American people. You must have some moral authority. You, you must have some semblance of credibility that when you tell the American people, we need to use force for this reason, that the majority of the country will believe you. Trump doesn't have that. And it's be- partially because he's a pathological liar. And partially it's because of his own history, not just having dodged the draft in Vietnam, but because he's all over the place. And so when you can't trust the basic facts, I mean, my gosh, you can't trust literally anything he has said about this. You can't trust even the nature of the decision, how it was made, on what basis basis it was made. And this was over something that's relatively minor. Can you imagine what it would be like over a major military conflict that might involve American casualties. He would be incapable of doing that, which makes the United States impotent in, in, in world affairs in a serious way. And can you imagine what happens in a second term for Donald Trump? That has always been my greatest concern going forward because then he doesn't have to worry about the electorate, he doesn't even, he only worries about himself and whatever his impulses are on that particular day, which are completely unpredictable. So we got a real insight into Trump's decision-making process here, and it ain't pretty. And uh, I'll be curious to, to see more on Sunday in the interview with Chuck Todd. Not that I have a lot of respect for Chuck Todd. It is interesting that this is the second time within about a week and a half that Trump has decided to do something that he has not done since last fall. So we went from last fall, when he did an interview with Leslie Stahl from 60 Minutes, a sit-down television interview, to a couple weeks ago when he spent allegedly 30 hours, though not really, with George Stephanopoulos from ABC for a series of interviews there that ABC turned into a 2020 special. That was the first time he had done a sit-down television interview with a non-friendly news personality. That's a long time, especially when they basically shut down the press department. And there's no press briefings anymore. And, you know, all Trump is doing is basically Fox News interviews and state-run media interviews. Well, now all of a sudden he's done one with Stephanopoulos and with Chuck Todd. I actually think, while counterintuitive, and again, you never know, is this just Trump acting on impulse or is, there, is he playing some sort of 3D chess? I actually think that these are good moves on his part, even though the Stephanopoulos interview in a rational world should have been a disaster. The Stephanopoulos interview in a rational world was horrific. It was a joke. He said dozens of things that were untrue and absurd. Correct. But... Stephanopoulos barely laid a glove on him. Why? Because Stephanopoulos is still working on a matrix that no longer exists in the Trump world. Stephanopoulos thinks we're still living in a rational world. 
And he also, bizarrely, given the time he had, was afraid of getting bogged down in correcting Trump in any one particular question or subject. Well, guess who wins in that situation? Trump does. Correct. Because he hits Stephanopoulos with a blizzard of absurdities. A blizzard of absurdities, and Stephanopoulos was simply overwhelmed. It was almost at certain points like a a parent trying to tell a child that their favorite fairy tale wasn't true, especially when they were talking about the Mueller report. And Stephanopoulos, on a couple of occasions, even said, I don't have time to get into this. We need to move on. Well, uh, first of all, you you have all the time, in, in relative terms, that anyone has ever had with Trump. Why don't you get and nail it down? I mean, I've always felt with Trump that, and I used this analogy before, that uh, it's like the difference between a game of whack-a-mole, you know, the, the, the game at a fair where you're, you're whacking the mole with, with the hammer as many times as you can and the, and the mole keeps popping up and you see how many you can hit and, you know, if you if you get enough, you win a prize, right? That's the game that Trump and the media are playing. Trump is coming up through so many holes that the media tries to whack each one and then moves on to the next one before there's been any real damage. The media should be looking at this like an oil well, all right? You dig and 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 and then finally, you get a gusher, all right? You don't play whack-a-mole with Trump. You have to dig for oil. And digging for oil takes time and resources and patience and some skill, none of which George Stephanopoulos had. And I wrote a, 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 a critique and a review of this interview for Mediate, which you can find at our uh, Twitter handle, Individual One Pod, which I urge you to check out. Because even though Trump came off horrifically to the knowledgeable person, in portions of that interview, by and large, for what he wanted to accomplish, I, I gave him a B plus. I gave Stephanopoulos a C minus. And the only reason why I gave Trump only a B plus, again, because he's he wants to show his cult. He's taking on the fake news media and beating the crap out of them. That's all he wants to do. And he, by and large, did that except for one moment that had nothing to do with Stephanopoulos. I hope people saw this, but, you know, it's amazing. We live in such a fragmented world with such short attention spans. My guess is most people didn't even see this, but this is amazing. So they're doing this interview. Trump gets asked about his financial statements. He starts bragging about how great his financial statements are and that he hopes they become public. In the middle of this, his chief of staff, Nick Mulvaney, coughs. Not even that loudly. He coughs. Trump stops the interview. Now, that was interesting right there because I swear this looked like Trump thought he was directing the interview, like it was an episode of The Apprentice. There was no difference, no difference in, in the way this looked than what I guarantee you happened on a, on a multi, multi-hour basis when they would tape The Apprentice. Trump doesn't like the way something happened. Stop the tape. Let's redo this because I really want this out there. I really want this because he knows. Trump knows how the media works. If there's a cough, there's a chance that that means that ABC will decide not to run this clip of him talking about how great his financials are. But it goes way beyond this, way beyond this, because Trump is 
pissed. And he's not pissed in a way that's kind of joking. No, no. He is legitimately upset that Nick Mulvaney has coughed and interrupted his interview to the point where you think, oh, my God, this guy's fucking crazy. He is fucking crazy. It was an accidental cough. And then this started a whole bunch of stories from people who apparently, you know, again, allegedly know this, having dealt with Trump, that Trump has a thing about coughing, that he views it as weakness, that therefore anyone who coughs can no longer be seen as credible. <laughs> what? <laughs> I mean, this is a man who is not mentally stable, folks. This is a man who is the most powerful person in the world, making major decisions about life and death, and he's pissed off because his chief of staff accidentally coughed? He came off as a complete jackass. And to me, if every American saw that clip, it would have done way more damage to Donald Trump politically than anything that else he could have said in that interview, no matter how crazy or inaccurate it was. Uh, but I doubt, I, I don't know what the numbers are. The ratings for this interview were not good, which is interesting. I'm not sure what to make of that. Uh, you know, the, the right-wing uh, state-run media blamed Stephanopoulos. I'm not sure how, how you, how do you blame Stephanopoulos for that? I mean, it, the ratings suck. It's Trump. Trump's the product there. Trump Trump is the what you're selling. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Maybe Americans are starting to get tired of the act, which would be, Maybe the biggest problem Trump could have. If that's true, if we're getting tired of the act, then Trump really is in big trouble in 2020 because maintaining the act, and I've always believed that a, a certain percentage of the electorate, unfortunately, maybe four or five percent, depending on how you look at it, are really just in this for the entertainment. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Well, according to the ratings, people were not that entertained by the ABC interview. Uh, but that clip, if you haven't seen it, check it out. Uh, Donald Trump getting very upset at Nick Mulvaney for the coughing. Now, uh, yesterday, there became a new allegation against Donald Trump of rape. And this is interesting to look at how the news media has handled this. Uh, it came from a writer by the name of E. Jean Carroll, who has written a book, and there's there's two separate issues here. There's the allegation against Trump, which happened many, many years ago in a department store dressing room, where she claims in quite great detail that she was raped, and she apparently told two friends of hers, two journalists, contemporaneously that this happened. Now, right there, uh, the details and the telling of friends contemporaneously, that sounds Credible, And I'm not saying that she's not credible. I don't know if she's telling the truth or not. She may very well be. It certainly sounds to me as if something happened. Of course, Trump is denying it completely. He denied he ever even met her, even though there's a photograph of them at a party together. Uh, that doesn't mean that he raped her, but it doesn't mean that Trump's a moron for saying in this statement that he never met this person in his life. And there's a photograph indicating that that's obviously not true. But so there's the allegation. And and if this allegation had come forward, let's say right when he started to run for president and we knew the names of the two uh, friends to whom she told this contemporaneously and they 100 percent backed up her story, I would be all in and believing this. This would and it would be incredibly relevant because this to me would indicate that 
Donald Trump is a rapist and that should be disqualifying to be president of the United States. However, none of that's the case. We don't know the names of these people who are her corroborating witnesses. We don't know what they say. It is possible that she told them something happened, but we don't know what what they're corroborating. We don't know that. Again, doesn't mean she's not telling the truth. I'm talking about what the standard of evidence in a case like this needs to be. So we don't have their names. We don't have their statements. This didn't happen when Trump started running for president. It's now happening when he's running for re-election. So basically four years late. And oh, by the way, it's happening as part of a book. A book that maybe to me, one of the most troubling aspects of the story is it's not a book about her, her allegation against Trump. It's basically a greatest hits list of all the times that she's been uh, treated inappropriately by men. I mean, it's an attack on men. It's almost like, and I don't mean to make light of this, but it's almost like she's the Forrest Gump of sexual assault. I mean, Les Moonves is in the book, Donald Trump, and, and I mean, and she's ba- and, and she's making essentially the case against men. Now, that doesn't again doesn't mean she's not telling the truth. But if you're going to believe this about a president of the United States, it can't be in a book where you're attacking men. Four years after he he announced he was running for president, and we don't have all the details of the corroboration. I'm sorry. And so the media is in a bind on this. And I've seen some lefties on Twitter very upset. And I kind of understand they're, where they're coming from because the media is very soft on this. They're they're reporting it. They're reporting his very strong denial. There's been an interview with her on MSNBC that's making the rounds. She seems credible to me. She's got details. I have some questions, but again, the the allegation seems like in the, in a normal world. In a normal world, it's the kind of allegation that would destroy someone politically, especially post Me Too. But we're not living in that world anymore, and it seems very difficult to understand which person who was supporting Donald Trump previously is going to suddenly stop supporting him because this woman makes a very, very old claim in a book that she's selling without any corroborating evidence and in a situation where uh, she is, you know, clearly got a political, or appears to at least, have a political agenda. The media has been very confused as to how to respond to this because their inclinations are they, of course, hate Trump. They they embrace every allegation of sexual assault, especially in the Me Too era, and 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 by the way, she's one of them. She's a long time, you know, journalist within the New York City elite media club. So th- their inclinations are to embrace her. I'm actually amazed they're being as restrained as they are, and I think that's probably the right move. It's very rare for me to praise the media, but I actually think so far they're handling this exactly the way they should. They're reporting the allegation respectfully. They're reporting his response respectfully. They're not making too much of this, but they're not censoring the story either because, as I've said, the story has some problems. And again, living in the world we're living in, I doubt it's going to have much of any impact uh, going forward, whether it should or not. Those are two totally different things. 
There's another story I got to mention that's that doesn't involve sexual assault, but uh, boy, uh, it, it certainly seems as if there's a romance going on. The text between Sean Hannity and Paul Manafort came out, and these are bizarre. Uh, the these there are hundreds, if not thousands, of texts between Fox News Channel Sean Hannity and Paul Manafort, including late night texts. Hey, you up? Like they're like they're scheduling a booty call or something, and uh, and and basically there's a conspiracy. I don't use that term lightly to coordinate uh, Sean Hannity and Fox News Channel's coverage on behalf of Paul Manafort and Donald Trump. Now, from a journalistic standpoint, there's a lot of problems with this. Of course, Hannity gets. A pass because he's not a journalist. He gets to claim he's a journalist when he wants to be, but when it doesn't fit, he can claim he's not a journalist. He's just an opinion guy. Well, to me, Fox News Channel ought to have to answer this. They probably won't have to answer this because Hannity gets great ratings and he's state-run media. He's Trump's favorite. So as long as Trump is president, Hannity is safe. Uh, but this is completely inappropriate. It should have been uh, you know, if, if Hannity had any semblance of credibility, he should have disclosed this kind of relationship. It raises other questions, like, for instance, Hannity's relationship with Michael Cohen. Because, you know, Michael Cohen is somebody who I don't think we've heard the whole story from. Uh, Michael Cohen, of course, the, the, the reason why we called this uh, podcast Individual One. For the record, Individual Number One is President Donald J. Trump. And Sean Hannity was client number three. So Donald Trump is individual one in Michael Cohen's world. And Sean Hannity was his client number three. And I have always been fascinated. (laughs) And I have written at Mediate asking, what the hell's going on here? Why has Sean Hannity been so incredibly hesitant to attack Michael Cohen? I mean, he has said, oh, Michael Cohen's a friend, and I I like him and his family. But uh, come on. Everybody else who has turned on Donald Trump and has become an enemy of Donald Trump becomes enemy number one for Sean Hannity, except for Michael Cohen. That seems awfully odd. Correct. And there seems like there might be something else going on there. What? I don't know. Uh, Your imagination can run wild. But uh, that's something to be looked at here, especially in light of these very strange and highly inappropriate Hannity and Paul Manafort texts. Uh, I did an interview this past week. We didn't do an episode of Individual One on Wednesday, but I did do an interview with Australian ABC Radio, which is a big deal in Australia. Interestingly, a good portion of the Global Story Network is based in Australia, although that didn't directly have anything to do with this interview. The reason why I'm mentioning this and we're going to play part of this interview is not just because it happened in a major media outlet in Australia and it gives you a sense of how this is all playing uh, the 2020 election coming up in, in another country. But in in doing this interview, they put me up against a Trump campaign official a woman that I had never heard of before. And frankly, I'm not sure what her role in the Trump campaign really is. It might have been exaggerated for the purposes of this interview. But I want we're going to play about 12 minutes of this dual interview. Not because what I say is all that particularly interesting. It's not going to surprise you. But I want you to listen 
to the other person in the interview. Because even I was stunned, and you're going to hear me chuckle a couple times in response. Even I was stunned at the cult-like nature of the Trump campaign official. I was expecting a whole lot of bullcrap, but this even blew me away. So here is this clip from Australian ABC Radio from this past Wednesday. I'm joined now to discuss Donald Trump's chances of re-election in 2020 by two prominent American conservatives with opposing views of the president. In Washington, D.C., I'm joined by Mika Mosbacher. She's a member of the Trump 2020 National Advisory Board. And joining me from California is John Ziegler, host of the Individual One podcast. Mika, John, welcome to Iron Breakfast. Thanks for having me. Good morning, Fran. Uh, Mika, four years ago, Donald Trump's mantra to win the election was make America great again. What will be his message to his supporters today when he launches his re-election bid? It will be the same, that it was promises made and promises kept. He promised to reinvigorate the economy. We've added uh, 600,000 manufacturing jobs in the last few months alone. He has promised to restore Supreme Court justices who are pro-life to the Supreme Court. He's done so. He's rolled back hundreds of job-killing regulations. We have record unemployment among African Americans and women in this country. We've hit a all-time low. And in in addition, uh, people have uh, applauded him, and that's why there are thousands of people who have waited in line in Orlando in the rain to attend this mother of all rallies, which really has been unprecedented. And I believe it is so important to keep the base invigorated so that they're not lulled into a false sense of security, especially since the polling is usually wrong. Uh, after all, you just played some clips that, that showed that many people and many pundits had written off Donald Trump as the candidate in 2016. Okay. And he was actually up only one in 15 polls. Okay. So let he'll me, continue to run against the swamp. Let, let me bring in John. Um, John, you're a lifelong Republican. You just heard Mika there. Um, the polls were wrong last time. Donald Trump's convinced they're wrong again at the moment. But given that long list of positive announcements that Mika rolled off, why won't you be supporting Donald Trump in 2020? <laughs> well, because a lot of what you just heard was propaganda. Well, some and, of it is uh, uh, some of it is fact. I mean, his record unemployment, well, I think the lowest unemployment in 50 years, uh, isn't it? Donald Trump has very little of anything to do with that. But let's let's address the, the topic here, which is will Donald Trump win? Mm-hmm. One of the great myths of 2016 is that the, the polls were somehow catastrophically wrong. The national polls were, at the very end, almost exactly right. Hillary Clinton defeated uh, Donald Trump by almost 3 million votes in the popular vote. It's just Donald Trump pulled an amazing, miraculous inside straight by winning three states he had no business winning, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, three states where he is way behind in the polls right now against Joe Biden. If Joe Biden is the Democratic nominee and the election was held tomorrow, Donald Trump would lose with 100% certainty. You know what? The weatherman is often wrong, but that doesn't mean you don't check the weather before you go outside and decide whether or not you're going to put on a jacket or not. The, The reality is that it was a fluke in 2016, and if Democrats are smart, which I don't know that they will be, because I'm a lifelong Republican who doesn't trust Democrats, but if they're smart and Joe Biden is the nominee, Donald Trump needs another miracle in order to win in 2020, and that's just a fact. Okay, but can I just, before I come back to Mika, can I just ask you why you don't think he deserves another 
term? What, what well, because he's a pat- well, the number one reason is he's a pathological liar who's psychologically unfit to be president of the United States, and who is if he is reelected with no accountability, we're, we haven't seen anything yet. In a second term, Donald Trump will, will be a very dangerous person because he will no longer have to face the voters of the United States of America, and he will be left to his own psychological devices, and his own mental illnesses will take over as they already have. This reality television show will go off the rails okay. in a second time. Okay, let me bring in Mika there. Mika, just in relation oh. to the, the president's uh, form in terms of his decision-making, there's been a lot said, a lot written, and a lot proven about fairly erratic decision-making going on in the White House. Does that concern you? No, that's fake news. There, fake news. First of all, America has stopped appeasing its enemies, and individuals <laughs> have reacted to his strength. The fact that... He is willing to take a strong stand with China and impose tariffs on China, impose tariffs on Iran. We had a disastrous uh, agreement with uh, under the Obama administration. He is taking a stand with Iran. They are testing us because we are breaking the back of their economy with sanctions. And secondly, I've been part of five presidential campaigns as a fundraiser for the Republican National Committee. I look at money raised, not polling. We have raised a record $40 million in the campaign, mostly small donors. We've raised a record $62 million in the last quarter with the Republican National Committee. The momentum is there for President Trump. He's unorthodox, so there are people in this country who suffer from Trump derangement syndrome. But the truth is is that he is delivering on his promises, and he is finally putting America first. And in that opinion, that's my opinion, it's making America great again. Okay, you're listening to RM Breakfast. It's 23 past eight. Our guest is Mika Mosbaka, a member of the uh, Trump 2020 National Advisory Board, and John Ziegler, conservative commentator and host of the Individual One podcast. Can we go to some of the issues around the Mueller report? Uh, Mika, does... President Trump owe the American public some kind of explanation as he heads towards his re-election bid on some of the behaviour that was that was came up in the Mueller report, obstruction of justice, for instance. Well, there were two parts of the Mueller report. First of all, the campaign, as well as President Trump, was completely exonerated in regard to <laughs> any sort of uh, uh, collusion with the uh, Russians. Secondly, <laughs> Mueller was not able to come to a conclusion in regard to any obstruction of justice, and how can you have struck when there was no underlying crime? So first of all, there is no explanation owed, and if the Democrats continue to investigate or impeach uh, that will be a political disaster. It was under uh, President Clinton. It backfired on the Republicans. All right. So Let I me... think that we we have wait. We have an Attorney General, uh, the IG Inspector General in this country, who is looking into irregularities in our Department of Justice and our FBI, where some individuals have already been fired. So. President Trump, as well as Attorney General Barr, are trying to restore faith in our justice system okay. in this country, which is in shambles. All right, John Ziegler, that's one <laughs> that's one slant on uh, the Mueller inquiry and the president's actions around that. Does President Trump, in your view, owe the American public some kind of explanation um, in terms of you know the allegations that he at least welcomed help from a foreign government in election, if not colluded? Do you think that's going to be a factor in him not being re-elected? Do you think it's going to matter at all to the American well, voting public? 
Well, those are two very different issues. I mean, the explanation you just heard was worse than propaganda. That, that's, that's from a, a cult member right there. Uh, that was not an accurate description at all of what Robert Mueller found or what Robert Mueller found. Hang on, hang on, Mika. Let John have a go. Go, I, I have, I've, I've read it, and I doubt you have. And I know the president of the United States has not read it. Uh, the, 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 here, here's what happened. Here's what happened Hang with on, the Mika, Mueller report. Mika, please, let John finish his answer. Here, here's what happened with the Mueller report. There was so much obstruction, Mueller wasn't able to determine for sure whether there was a conspiracy, a legal term, which is incredibly narrow, a conspiracy with Russia. The issue of collusion was never even something that Mueller looked at, yet the president loves to distort using that word. The reality is that the president didn't even do an interview with Robert Mueller, and in a written answer said 37 times he couldn't remember key events. That's so much obstruction along with destruction of evidence, people taking the Fifth Amendment, dangling of pardons, that there's no possible way that Robert Mueller could have found evidence of a conspiracy, even if it existed, because there was so much obstruction. The president should be impeached, whether or not he will be or not. I do not know. I doubt Democrats will have the guts to do it. It is delusional, by the way, to say that Republicans suffer for impeaching Bill Clinton. They won the next four congressional elections in a row, including the presidential election. Okay, let's let's lower the temperature a little here because we're almost out of time. Mika, as we look towards this re-election bid from the US president, you said in your first answer, you know, it's important to keep for him to keep the base invigorated. He invigorated the base in his run in the last election by promising uh, to build a wall on the US-Mexico border, for instance, to stop illegal immigration. That hasn't materialised yet. Mexico is not paying for it. What do you think the president has been going is going to offer the base this time around? Well, first of all, back to Mexico paying for the wall. Mexico is now cooperating by sending thousands of troops to the border. We have a severe crisis across our southern border in the United States. And part of the issue is, is that the Democrats and Republicans especially the Democrats, won't come to the table. This has been a long-standing problem for decades, the need for immigration reform. And President so, Trump so what I'm asking you, I suppose, how do you think he's... At the border. But how is he going to present that to his supporters? He didn't achieve that. Do you think he'll just bowl that up again? No, the fact that he has Mexico cooperating in the conversation to help mitigate the issues at the border is huge. And that base responded to that extremely well. What the Democrats need is a record to run on and what they have done is obstruct and investigate. All right, John, just very briefly from you, uh, what do you expect to see from Donald Trump as he, as Mika puts it, uh, attempts to keep the base invigorated? Well, the problem is that the base is only 41, 42 percent of the electorate. And in a head-to-head, two-person race, you cannot win the presidency of the United States with 42 percent. So that's a problem for Donald Trump. He needs something to happen. He needs either Joe Biden not to be the nominee or he needs a third person to enter the race. Otherwise, he's going to be a one-term president, which would be the best thing for history we could possibly imagine. What about external events? What about some kind of, you know, if it ended up with some kind of military action against Iran, for instance, something like that? Oh, certainly there could be events that change things, but the opinions of Donald Trump are so entrenched and so set in stone that it would really take something monumental to upheave the current political climate. That's certainly possible. We live in a very strange world. But as of today, Donald Trump needs something to change for him to be reelected. Okay. One final question from each of you. Keep your answers relatively short, if I, if I could ask that. Um, Mika, starting with you, in 2016, Donald Trump beat 16 fellow Republicans. He then beat Hillary Clinton to become the first person to reach the Oval Office with no political or military experience. 
Has Donald Trump forever changed the presidency in your view? Has he? Yes, because he is taking on the swamp in Washington, D.C., the entrenched deep state or bureaucrats. And I went out on a limb in 2016 and predicted that Donald Trump would win and would prevail when no one else had had taken him seriously. And I predict he'll prevail again. And John Ziegler, let me ask you the same question. Has Donald Trump changed the presidency? And perhaps importantly, has the presidency changed him at all, in your view? I don't know if it's changed him, but he has changed the presidency. He is much more of a monarchy now. He thinks of himself as a king. He has degraded the office in numerous ways. He has not drained the swamp. He is the swamp. And I fear that if he gets a second term, we're headed down a path from which there is no return. All right. John Ziegler, Mika Mosbacher, thank you very much for joining us. Uh Now, speaking of uh, Trump's reelection campaign, which sounded an awful lot in his opening campaign rally like he was running against Hillary Clinton in 2016, didn't it? I mean, <laughs> it feels as if as, as if his act is getting uh, very old very quickly. Correct. Uh, but he's not going to be running against Hillary Clinton. Uh, hopefully, if you're someone who wants him to lose to a ra- semi-rational person like I do, he'll be running against Democratic former vice presidential not just candidate, but actual vice president, Joe Biden. And there's been a lot of news involving Joe Biden. I wrote a column for Mediaite again explaining this week why it is that Joe Biden is the candidate best suited to go up against Trump. Let me say for the, I don't know how many times I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. I'm not even a Joe Biden fan. Joe Biden is a gaffe machine who's not that bright, who I disagree with on a whole slew of issues. But if the issue is you want someone who can beat Trump and get us at least somewhat back to a semblance of normalcy and hit a reset button and for four years might allow people to regroup and try to erase this stain from the United States of America, Biden's your guy and he might be your only guy. He might be the only option. Well, as I have been concerned about for quite some time and expressed those concerns on this podcast, we saw this week once again why there's a very good chance that Trump may not have to go up against Biden and that he might get reelected because liberals and Democrats are going to screw this up. Their latest attempt to screw this up, and let's be clear, this is the second major attempt. The first attempt was on the whole uh, inappropriate touching and groping situation, which Biden seemingly has gotten mostly passed. That occurred before he officially announced. Now they're going after him on race. Now, (laughs) this is, I mean, it's just unbelievable. You cannot be serious. The guy was, was Barack Obama's vice president for Eight freaking years. He got the Presidential Medal of Freedom from Barack Obama, the first black president in the history of the country. Obama to this day says his best decision was making Joe Biden his vice president. And and you're going to go after Joe Biden for being a racist? It's just flat out ridiculous. <laughs> Come on, people. You, um, how badly do you want Donald Trump to be reelected? I mean, this is insanity. And the, and the controversy that dominated this week was as dumb as anything I have ever seen in politics. And that is a very high bar. Because here's what happened. Joe Biden was talking about working with people he disagreed with. By the way, Democrats! 
These were Democrats, even though it was incorrectly reported by Casey Hunt from MSNBC that they were Republicans, because, of course, everyone in the media presumes if someone is racist, they must be a, a Republican, right? No, no, no. Biden was talking about segregationists who were Democrats back in the 70s when Biden got into the Senate from Delaware and working with them, even though he didn't like them, to try to get things done. There was nothing he said that was positive about them being segregationists. Nothing. All it was about was him making the analogy of, hey, I worked with these guys in the past. I can work with Republicans in the future to get things done. That was it. And Cory Booker, a black candidate, senator from New Jersey, who is desperate for any sort of issue that he can put himself on a cross on so that he might become relevant in the Democratic primary process, jumped all over it. And some other liberals, mostly white virtue signaling do-gooders who who want either Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren to be the nominee or somebody like that. They jump all over this, too, and somehow try to turn Joe Biden, and they got a lot of help from the liberal mainstream news media, try to turn Joe Biden into some sort of racist. Well, this didn't work. And so it's, it's kind of like 0 for 2 now. They've, they swung at him and missed on the, on the creepy Joe thing, and now they're going after him on being a racist, and this, this was a swing and a miss because people like John Lewis, a civil rights hero, Democratic congressman, black guy, comes out and he says, no, (laughs) no, this is not what Joe Biden was saying. He was not, uh, you know, praising segregationists. This was not racist. We we like Joe. There's nothing wrong with Joe on this front. And and so that appears to have now died down. And is it possible? Is it I'd like to see for, for someone who is known as a pessimist, I actually try to be optimistic from time to time, if only to keep my what's left of my sanity. It's possible that's what's what is happening here is that that Biden is becoming inoculated by these bogus controversies. The first one being the creepy Joe, and now this one being racist Joe. It's possible. It's also possible that what we're really seeing here are earthquake tremors, that, that, that the ground is clearly not stable, that because liberals and Democrats so want to blow this, either consciously or, or subconsciously, that we're just seeing tremors of what is inevitably going to be the larger earthquake that will eventually bring Joe Biden down. I don't know which scenario is most likely. I think both are possible. I'm rooting for number one right now, even though I'm not a fan of Joe Biden. I just want a semblance of normalcy. Uh, But my gut tells me we might be headed to number two. And part of why we might be headed to number two is because both the conservative and the liberal media have this perverse incentive to destroy Joe Biden. And this is something I'm going to be writing about for Mediate maybe this week. Uh, maybe in the next couple of days, so check that out. But this is a really big issue, that Biden is going to have to go up against both the left and the right-wing media, almost all the media. There's almost no media that has an incentive for him to easily win the nomination and then beat Donald Trump. It doesn't help anybody in the media. It destroys their narratives. It, just, it hurts them economically. They want drama. That's what they need. And right now, there's not drama because Biden's dominating the Democratic nominating process. 
And you can see the media, you know, they were thirsting for Pete Buttigieg. That little boomlet, and I'm talking tiny boomlet, a couple of percentage points, maybe waning now. But did you happen to see? Check out my Twitter feed. A horrendous video of Pete Buttigieg trying to to put down a black revolt uh, over uh, his handling of a police shooting in South Bend. I mean, this was horrendous. I mean, Buttigieg is completely out of his element. And I've never seen a situation where in 30 seconds, without hardly saying anything, someone is disqualified from being president of the United States, especially when they're a scrawny little white guy. I mean, he looked pathetic. He didn't look like he was qualified to be student council president. All right. I mean, it was it was sad. And I actually like Pete Buttigieg. So Pete Buttigieg might be done. Uh, he's he's lucky that the Democratic debates are this week, so he can, at least has a chance to to uh, change the subject. But that was awful. But so the media, and I've seen, I've been seeing this for weeks now, has been trying really, really hard to push Elizabeth Warren. And I, I've actually had some liberal uh, reporters like uh, Dave Weigel from uh, uh, the Washington Post mock me. I think he tweeted. If you say Elizabeth Warren's name three times in the mirror, John Ziegler appears to tell you enjoy Trump's second term. <laughs> Which I, I enjoyed that tweet. I retweeted it myself because I thought, you know what? That's not. I, I, I think my response was fact check, fact check, mostly true. Because uh, I I absolutely believe that, and I actually come from a unique position on Warren because bizarrely, and there are like eight people that might remember this, I have somewhat of a financial incentive for Elizabeth Warren to be the Democratic nominee. Because I got a, I got boxes and boxes of these Elizabeth Warren Washington Redskins parody t-shirts that we made four years ago that no one wanted. So if she's the nominee, I might be able to get rid of some of these goddamn t-shirts. They're awesome t-shirts. But, but So I, in a weird way, you know, Elizabeth Warren might be very in a very small way good for me uh but i don't give a shit because it's way more important that donald trump not lose not not win and elizabeth warren is one of the few people who might lose to donald trump and it's all because of the dna pocahontas situation that is devastating to her and i'm sure i'll do more on this in the future i'll probably write about this for mediaite but it is incredibly naive for liberals to think that that issue has somehow been resolved and has gone away. It plays right into Trump's hands in every possible way. Political correctness is his fuel. And the Pocahontas DNA test, my God, it's like rocket fuel for Donald Trump. And that's what would define her. She's already a socialist from Massachusetts. And you now, and you're going to add in the Pocahontas DNA thing. Good luck with that. Good luck. You you have no chance. I mean, I shouldn't say. I mean, unless the economy tanks, you have no chance of beating Donald Trump on that turf. Correct. That's just the reality of it, folks. And if you don't realize that, then you deserve Donald Trump's second term. Uh, the debates this week of the Democrats, it's going to be a joke. Uh, you know, 20 people over two nights. They're already going to get like five minutes to appeal to the craziest 10% of the base. Uh, I, I don't think it's a very good w- uh, way of choosing a nominee. And, and the only good part of it might be that it's going to be so bad that no one is able to get traction against Joe Biden. That's my hope. That it's going to be such a cluster that everyone's just going to go, ah, eh, this is 
bullcrap. Let's go with Biden. A um, couple other real quick things before we end this episode of the podcast. I keep harping on the emoluments clause being the biggest mistake Democrats have made in not engaging in impeachment immediately after they took the House of Representatives. Trump is in complete, total, and obvious, constant violation of the emoluments clause. More evidence of that in the Washington Post this week. You know, and this is not directly involving the emoluments clause, but it's related. He has taken 126 trips to his own properties as president. You know what that means? Every time the president goes to one of his properties, one, they get free publicity. Two, guess what happens? Our government and the Republican Party pay lots of money to his property more money than they would normally in a situation because he's president and all sorts of security issues. And guess who gets that money? Donald Trump gets a lot of that money when it's all said and done. Millions of dollars. And he has even apparently lobbied to do next year's G7 summit at his resort in Miami, the Doral Golf Club. Now, how much money would that be? And that would be a direct violation of the emoluments clause. And yet this is an issue most Americans aren't even aware of. Some Democrats have tried to raise it, but you know, Democrats are slowly but surely coming out for impeachment. In fact, this week a couple of them from swing districts came out and called for impeachment, which I said, you know, by this rate, let's see, hmm, a couple of week I think we might be ready to impeach Donald Trump by the end of his second term. Good job, guys. Wow, congratulations. Correct. Yeah, it's just amazing uh, how wussy the Democrats have been on this whole thing. They've really done a good job. Yeah, I mean, that, the reality is that the, the window is probably already shut. Uh, whether he still might be impeached, but I am even I am waning in my enthusiasm for impeachment. Supposedly, Mueller is going to testify soon. I'll believe it when I see it. Uh, but uh, Democrats have completely blown this whole thing on impeachment, and it gives me very little faith that they're going to be able to figure out a way to beat him soundly in 2020. With that said, as we always end each in, uh, episode of the Individual, Individual One podcast with the uh, two percentages that we've been keeping track of, please, again, no wagering. Number one is the percentages that uh, Donald Trump does not finish his first term in office. We're going to keep that at just 4%. And even though there's a lot of bad news, including bad polling number and 52% of the American public is very uncomfortable with voting for Donald Trump for re-election, I'm going to actually nudge his re-election number up slightly to 42% because of the media's obsession with Elizabeth Warren, who I think would be a sitting duck for Donald Trump. So that'll do it for this episode. Remember, uh, once again, we're not going to be doing one on this Wednesday, but we will be back next weekend. So until then... Please remember to subscribe, rate, review, and share the show via social media. Follow us on Twitter at individual, the number one pod. That's individual one pod. And until next time, my name's John Ziegler. You've been listening to the Global Story Network.